Welcome to Miss D's Lunacy. I have with me an incredible guest. She is a phenomenon in her own right. She's New York-based. She happened to have been a child prodigy of art. So she has been, since she was two years old, she was amazing. And her art was sold all over the place. She recently wrote a book, which is actually the most fascinating thing. It's like a teaser, a Oh, my God, it should be made into a movie. And it's called Ponzi and Picasso. And she calls it faction, which I think is remarkable because it's actually based on actual events, but change names to protect the individuals. Her book is based on scandals in the art world, which we don't know much about, and she's going to teach us. It is involving collusion and complicity with the drug cartels, the Russian oligarchs who are laundering money, the forgeries that even museums own, and also the Middle Eastern states with unlimited supply of oil that buy the art. This is phenomenal information. So without further ado, I would like for you to meet the woman who knows more about this than any of us could possibly imagine. Please meet my guest, Rochelle Orstrom. Hello, Diane. So nice to be here. Well, it's exciting to have you because you are so full of information and intrigue. I feel like I'm in a mystery, and we're surrounded by mystery, by this amazing story. And I want you to start and tell our audience how you actually got about to figure out all the scandals and the marketing and the ploys that brought you to this revelation, because most of us are not as well-known in the world market or not as well-versed, I would say, as you are. Well, I've been in the art world my whole life. I've been a painter. I've been a struggling artist, a successful artist. I've um, been in the. I've been on the boards of many of the museums in um, New York, in the boardrooms of the acquisition committees. So I saw what was going on. And I, so, so often people are intimidated when they look at modern art. They see a painting, black on black. What does it mean? Um, I agree. And it confuses me. It's just, and it's really, a lot of it is the emperor's new clothes syndrome, where everyone agrees to agree and no one really knows. <laughs> but um, the thing is, the curators, they're the ones, they're the great storytellers of all time. They infuse the painting with meaning and significance. They give it a backstory. The backstory is what's important. You know, the context in which it was created, the historical time, who were his peers at the time, what they... All these artists, they have, um, they have a dialogue going on between them, and a silent dialogue in, with colors and, and shapes and sculptures. It makes it amazing because actually the art world has gone completely out of whack. The prices are oh, extraordinary. The prices are amazing. And they've gone out of control, and it makes absolutely no sense because these poor artists died broke. And all of a sudden you're talking about Mondiglianis and Picassos going for $170 million dollars. How did this actually come about? And, of course, a lot of it has to do with this money laundering that nobody seems to know, which is part of what your book is about, because it is really about a scandal. Yes. And so this is where your knowledge is so important, because you're going to give us the tease as to where the book has been based upon your personal knowledge of what has been going on in the art world, which most of us are not aware. Yeah. Recently, there was a Gauguin painting that sold for $300 million. Um, 
the, the why are these uh, where are these huge prices coming from? What's fueling this art world? It's Russian oligarchs trying to get their money out of Russia before Putin takes their rubles. It's run by drug cartels that are laundering their money. There are hedge fund owners that are buying trophy pieces for their trophy wives. There's all that funny money around, and then you have the the Middle Eastern states, um, Abu Dhabi and. Cutter. They're both building museums. So they've had huge unlimited art budgets. They went and bought everything they could get their hands on that was good of, of Western art to bring it to their country because they know their oil is going to run out one day and they want to turn it into a tourist destination. This is the Middle East. It's like Kevin Costner, he said, build it and they will come. But uh, they're doing the Bilbao effect. They want to make that happen in the uh, But it's extraordinary that we regular people are absolutely not aware of this convoluted business. Now, you also spoke about marketing and branding, which I thought was so important. And I want to explain to our, re- to our listeners that you actually started your own advertising company, which I think is incredible. And you were CEO, so you understand the process. And your largest uh, account was HBO. And so you actually understand the product and how to sell it. So this is also very linked to the fact that you understand the art market, being an artist yourself, and and it's very similar to what you're talking about, the branding and the campaigning of how to tell somebody the painting is fabulous, even though it's a piece of plate on the wall, and everybody goes, oh my God, it's a Julius Schnabel, it's going to go for $200 million, I'm so excited. So the prices are obviously overinflated. Is that correct? And I'm assuming that. Well, they are. They are what they are. You know, is there a bubble in the art market? Um, we'll see. Things go up and down a little bit, but um, there's so much money out there, and people have to put their money somewhere. And a, a piece of art is a very transportable place for um, people to put value, to take their cash and put, stash it someplace. In Port Geneva in Switzerland, that's the greatest warehouse in the world that's filled with tax-deductible um, treasures of the world. You, someone buys something at auction and no one knows who buys. It's the most opaque field around uh, and it, in such a big industry too. It's very unregulated. The Someone buys something at auction, no one knows who's, who bought it. It gets shipped to Geneva. They don't pay taxes on it. It gets hidden. Um, so there's so much collusion going on and scandals. And, you know, you've all heard about the um, Nodler Gallery, which was the most elite art gallery in the world ever for 165 right. years. They went down. They sold, what was it, $60 million of forged art by a little Chinese man that lived in Queens and Mrs. Gonzalez went and sold it to Anne Freeman who claimed she never knew that they were forgeries but they bought a uh, Jackson Pollock for $950,000 and they sold it for $8 million flipped it just flipped it they they were just selling all those paintings and they they went down Sandler O'Reilly he was Oh, he had the whole estate of, of John Davis. He sold all the paintings, never gave a cent to his uh, to the heir, and they were good family friends. <laughs> He's in jail. They're all in jail. How did they get him? Oh, they got him because he was uh, nobody. He wouldn't give anyone their money for their paintings, but he was living in luxurious. You know, he had his private jet. He had beautiful homes all over the world. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah. Now you told me about the bidding, which I thought was so interesting. Yeah. 
They, it's called oh, uh, uh, oh. chandelier building, which I thought was amazing. Yeah, chandelier bids. That's that's one way the prices get blown, inflated a bit, because often the um, auctioneer will point to the chandelier and say, that's another $500 million. Will you give me $1 million, $2 million, points to the chandelier. I have $3 million. No one's there. And then, then oh, then if you, uh, there's a lot that goes on at the auction houses, but if my book goes into this more in uh, detail, uh, but it's, there are all these back door and treaties and and guarantees and several people buy, own the painting before it even comes to market. Uh, so that's how that's how paintings get branded by going to auction when you establish. Well, it's amazing price. because I mean, for instance, I did a little bit of research. Not that I'm really good at this, but I found it amazing that there was a Gauguin that was sold for three hundred million, and a Picasso for one hundred seventy nine million to a Chinese. He never paid. It was in November. At the Christie's Gallery, he never paid a thing. Then, Shocking. I mean, it's unbelievable. Modigliani, David Geffen sold a Jackson Pollock and a de Kooning to Ken Griffith for five hundred million dollars. I mean, these things are just being swapped around. It's funny money. It's unbelievable. Why do they say the statistics where there were one hundred sixty-eight billionaires in the world, and they have to put their money somewhere? I mean, that's why people are buying all those very expensive condominiums in New York and all over the world. They so they're they inflating never the prices of everything. They have to put their money somewhere. But I mean, they're still, as an American, have to pay taxes. So I don't know how they're avoiding taxes. Oh, no, they don't pay them if they buy. If it buy it at an auction, it gets shipped right out to um, Geneva, Port Geneva in Switzerland. It's the warehouse where everyone sends yes, their artwork. Americans, uh, by law, tell you that you have to declare your income worldwide. And they've already broken down through the Swiss banks who have given them private... But no one knows. The auction houses won't reveal who buys the painting. It's not... They don't have to. It's an opaque industry. How are they privy to the United States government not asking them to tell them... I who, don't know. Ask Taubman, who's, who spent some time in jail. Yeah, I, but I, that was because Dee Dee yeah, turned Dee, them in. Uh, well, she wasn't exactly a pal, uh, let's put it that way. It's, it's a very backdoor um, business. Well, you know, they were fighting between uh, Christie's and Sotheby's for years, and that was what happened... With this disaster where they should have all been together, but the prices, again, which is so amazing, is because of the Russians and the drug cartels and the Chinese who have really, yes, and who have, who have inflated the prices, which I think is, is beyond, and people are just walking around going, isn't this absolutely fabulous? There's something very wrong with this picture, and you're the only one. Who's got a book that's talking about it and making it real? I bet you that would be the best movie we could get Pierce Brosnan, the coolest guy on earth, and start to, because he had a wonderful movie with Rene Russo, and it was so fabulous. I mean, they that were sort was of great. wasn't it great? He was walking around with hats and everything. And they were all doing the sort of the art market and stealing things. Well, I mean, I'm telling you, this is actually a real story. Every person that's read my book, the first thing they say at the end is, "This should be a movie." Every they, single person. Well, well they said it's, it's like being on crack. That's right. <laughs> I read some of the wonderful reviews. And I was fascinated. They said they couldn't put it down. <laughs> and they were talking about the mafia kingpins and everybody else. I mean, this is just absolutely made for movies because it is so intriguing. And the fact that you had the wherewithal to be able to write. Now, now who was your publisher, darling? Well, I, I self-published it. Amazing. I had, a, I had an offer to publish, but, you know, they offer you so little. And I then understand. the book is off the uh, shelf in three months. And this way, I've, and they don't really do that much for you. So well, I just thought I'd do it myself. I took the bull by the horns and took control. And I, 
Well, you're just amazing. Just did it. And it's been fun. It's been interesting. But, you know, the reason I wrote this book was because I really was annoyed at the art world. My paintings, pictures, those paintings in my book by Aloysia Jones, she's our heroine. Um, Those are my paintings. And you can see them online if you look at the website, ponziandpicasso.com. You can see them in color and a lot more. Um, But... I wrote the book to really to avenge all serious artists that are not yet branded and marketed because I, after a while you just realize it's just, you know, it's the emperor's new clothes, a lot of it. And you have to have the backstory. It's a, it, for instance, if someone were wearing, if someone was going to buy a Kevin Costner sweater at auction and for a million dollars you couldn't buy it, but you, you're never allowed to say whose sweater it was, would you still buy it? No. Okay, so this is the branding, marketing, the backstory. Well, look at uh, Paul McCartney's uh, piece of hair sold for $35,000. I mean, you know, I just read that in New York Post. I was like, what? I mean, you know, if somebody had said it was somebody else's hair, nobody would have cared. So you're right. It's called branding and marketing. It may never have been his own hair. But there is a lot of, of hype that goes on at advertising. As you know, you were in advertising. And you try to do the best that you can to try to make the product reality. And there's a lot of people who really just remember that fellow that went down. You know, he was in the in the music. Uh, what was it? He was selling. It's like Best Buy. And he was complete. Oh, I do remember the yeah. appliance man on the TV. The appliance man yes, on TV. Yeah, and he went. Eddie. Com- Crazy Eddie. Crazy Eddie. Yes. And he was telling you that this is going to be the best. <laughs> and he went to jail. Whatever. He, I mean, this is. Obviously not related, but it is, in essence, the story of Crazy Eddie, who ended up lying to people, selling all this stuff, and he went to jail. So if you think about the, there are so many stories, but if we're thinking about the art world and about how they're, you know, pushing Julian Schnabel and Modigliani and da-da-da-da-da, and people are just busting out of there going, I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it. And all of a sudden, there's this bubble that's been created. And the whole thing's completely out of whack. And that's basically what I think your book is going to provide the information of the scandals, yes, which is so will. interesting. And also the forgeries, too. You know, you no, know the yeah, story that, that's incredible. About, um, Wolfgang Beltracci. Oh, my goodness. This man is from Germany. And he, he's the master forger of all times. And his work has appeared on the cover of Christie's catalog, the Sotheby's catalog. He's in museums all over the world as authentic. All these paintings were authenticated. That's another story, the authentication process. Oh my goodness. But he, um, he, they, he finally caught up with him. They put him in jail. He had, got, uh, put, he had a sentence for six years. He spent one and a half years. And during that time, he wrote two books. And now he's out of jail and having a show. But now he signs his own, his own name. And his branding and marketing is getting very high prices for his own work. He's a, he's a genius, he, after all. But he actually ended up telling that it was somebody else's work at the original. It was all forged before. But now he does this. He could still copy a painting, but he signs his Can own name. Can you imagine? That is just not fair. Now, tell me about the fact that there was a group that got together and put out a hundred... Uh, the Rembrandt yes. Research Project. Correct. They went and vetted all the a thousand paintings that were attributed to Rembrandt that were in museums. And out of 1,000 paintings, only 320 were authenticated by the Rembrandt Research Project. That is and the rest are still hanging in the museums. And they're fake. Yeah. 
Along with it is the, extraordinary. The, I mean, the museum should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah. It's also the digital art analysis, which is, authenticates things exactly. They're full. It's foolproof, and the museums won't use it because um, they say it's uh, it creates algorithms to make to find out if paintings really authentic, and the museums won't they they won't use it because they won't, don't want to open up a Pandora's box. But that's illegal. Oh, it not really. Art. Art, everything's legal in the art world. Almost. Isn't that amazing? That I mean, it's sort of like a free-for-all. I mean, I could walk around and do sort of a doodle-doodle, and I could call it I don't know what, and people would say, sure. So how do real artists really get ahead? You, I have, mean, to, you have to convince the curator. Um, uh, of the, You have to get a metaphor. You have to find the metaphor. How does that work? Oh, okay. Felix Gonzalez Torres. He has a, an art piece he did. And if you look at it, it's a, in a big white room gallery and a bunch of blue saran-wrapped candies piled up on a wall. That's his piece. What does this mean? Asked the woman. Well, what it means is it represents his lover who died of AIDS. And people are supposed to take a piece of the candy. And as the pile shrinks... He's that represents the weight loss of his friend dying of AIDS. And then when it's all gone, they replenish the whole pile. And that represents his resurrection. And? And that's the metaphor. And this paint, this work sells for a lot of money. But then you would have to sell it with all the candy on that's it. That's right. And then people would have to, so they'd have to replenish the candy and take the candy away and put it again. But you have to get the special candy. Otherwise, it's not authentic. So they got away with it, and he was able to sell it. No, this is authentic. This is a well, real piece. God. This is a real piece of art. But I, I was giving you the example of the metaphor because all I you see. see is a pile of candy in the corner, and unless the curator tells you what it means, you have no idea. So it's all like this black on black painting. What does it really mean? It means that some are glossy blacks, some are matte colored blacks. So everything has to have a metaphor, and this is what the curators do. They're the great storytellers of all time. They're almost like an and, advertiser. Yeah, and the backstory, and they get paid so little, generally speaking. The curators, Isn't that interesting? They do. They really. They should really be more appreciated. They should. They should make more money than. Uh, well, especially they, if they're going to lie. But uh, but often they're not lying. They make up. They they're creative. They make up a story, and then they put it in context, the historical context of, of the backstory. So, how did the story about the thousand Rembrandts affect the world? And affect the museums. They just sort of like buried it? Or? Okay, people know it. They just know it and they continue on. How does the, you know, the, all the things in the world happen that happened? They affect us and then we continue on with our lives. That's amazing. Things we read about in the newspapers every day. It is. Um, it's, it's quite amazing. Well, what about the schnabel? How did he put a bunch of plates and stuff up and he became an absolute on, prodigy? On velvet. He was a very he is a very charismatic person. Right. There's a lot of um, hanky panky going on too, you know, with, with different curators and blah, blah, blah. but Schnabel was he's a very charismatic person. You know, the introverted artist is not always so well received as one that's not. I feel sorry for the artists today that really do have talent and just sort of somewhat minimize and sort of left aside because so many people are really talented but it's so difficult to get their work out it's like an actor who goes to LA and they join SAG and they're like waitressing and they're waiting for their break and it's just it's, it's a terrible yeah 
That's why I wrote the book. I wanted to avenge all artists, serious artists that are not branded and marketed because, you know, they deserve, and they, my book is almost like a primer for going, before you become an artist, you should read this book. If you want to be an artist, see what's going on in the art world, figure out, get know what you're dealing with before you jump into this field and give it your whole life. Because it's going to be a lot of heartbreak. And I know so many people that are really talented and they've never been able to really succumb to the to the draw, and I mean, it takes so much courage. What, um, from, let's see, 19, oh, in the 80s, for instance, there were maybe one artist in 200 that were written about in Art News magazine. Yeah. Only one of them is currently represented by a gallery. What a shame. Well, it's like the actors, you know, who were all struggling and somehow they were able to make it. And some of them didn't, obviously. Yeah. So it's unfortunate because talent like that is so raw talent and it's innate, which is what yours was. You couldn't have possibly known at two years old that you were a prodigy. And it was extraordinary for you to be able to actually be recognized and your parents helped you. And that's very unusual. But I mean, people that start painting in a much later time in their life do not have the support. And unless they go to Juilliard or painting art classes, do not have the the success that they usually do have. Photography actually has become very, very popular today. And they're rebuilding, of course, the Andy Warhol, who has just gone gangbusters with the amount of money that's going on with the Andy Warhol. And of course, back in the day, it was just Campbell Soups and things like that. But it's now absolutely stratosphere. Don't you agree with me? Oh, it is. And there are so many forged uh, Andy Warhols. What happens today if... if they say the, some of the statistics are forty percent of all art is is forged. But they don't that contemporary art isn't necessarily forged that much because the person is alive and can correct it's the dead people. That it's the dead people exactly. And um, so I had happened? a I had a, a an artist that I was representing. It was actually quite amazing. And I went to Art Basel and I was talking to some of the galleries. And I said, well, would you be interested in looking at these paintings? And I had, of course, his portfolio, and I was on the thing. And he goes, unless he's dead, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> and I went, whoa, because, of course, dead means three times the price. I was so shocked. No, no, not anymore. Well, it's amazing. If you're dead, you got a hell of a lot oh, going Andrew for Andrew Gursky's work, he's, uh, uh, he's one of the highest living artists. And uh, Damien Hirst, they sell for more than uh, some of the dead people, <laughs> a lot more. Do you think it's a bit of luck, or is it just really, really talent? It's a both. It's you have to be very smart to navigate the world of uh, the marketing, the branding, and the production of art. But these artists, Andy Warhol, Damien Hirst, um, not Andy, uh, um, Murakami, um, they, these people have um, factories. They never put their hand to the to the canvas. They they have hundreds. They employ hundreds of people that do all the work for them. Are they really artists or are they art directors? Well, there was a lot of things about Da Vinci that wasn't his. It was his artists, students that were painting for oh, him. School and of school That's of what they call the school of the school of. And so it continues to this day where these artists really can't. First of all, my favorite artist is Matisse. And I mean that man. I revere. I mean I adore. The man was in a wheelchair. He was doing the most incredible work in the world. And he was really authentic. And, of course, Prolog was incredible in his absolute wackadoodle way. And, unfortunately, he died a tragic death in a car accident, which was so tragic. And I don't think people recognized him until after his death. Is that true? I mean, in fact. No, he was recognized before. 
Yeah, but not as much. But, well, when you die, your prices go up. Isn't that amazing? So you have to sort of paint, and then you have to die, and then everybody goes. Look at poor Van Gogh. Well, the poor man was penniless. It was his brother who helped him. I mean, and look at the artists that that gave paintings to wait a way for them to have food and to have lodging and to have a dinner and they would just give paintings away and the and, dentist oh my god well i'm not sure about dentists, but I've and then a painting would, to the dentist oh <laughs> but for you darling ah well it's all right but look at the loads of it when i went to russia and i went to see the say when i went to st petersburg i just was about blown away with the i mean it took almost four hours to get through the impressionist galleries it was so amazing and it was all stolen art that had come in cases and i mean cases of it back after during the war yes mm-hmm. and they were just buying things that they probably would never have shown i mean the artist was just fooling around and these paintings were amazing and they would just say you know i'll pay three hundred dollars a thousand dollars and they would come in like cases of 30 and 40 they have some of the highest um amount of uh, forgeries in the world isn't that amazing? Yes, the Russians. They have they say that they're that forty percent of their art is is forged. I'm glad to know that. Yeah. And, but but the, of course nobody's ever challenged them. But those Serbian teams of art thieves, they're they're the ones that go around and really steal um they, they steal a lot of art. They say, and they never get 20, caught. They, even in America, twenty five percent of all the art that's stolen in America gets gets sold. It, they people buy it. They just buy it underground and at high prices. Very high. Even though they may or may not know they're authentic. Oh, yeah. Well, they think it is. Well, whatever you think is what it may be, but maybe you're wrong. It is. It's been authenticated. It's easy to get people to authenticate something. You just, you, you, you wine and dine them, and eventually you, you just, they cave. They just uh, sign on the dotted line. It's a very um, it's gray business, the authentication process. and It's true. It, uh, and some get caught. And so Billy, Bill Coke, Billy Coke, as most people know him, he bought all this wine through Sotheby's, which was all completely fake. It was this old, paid hundreds of thousands. And he got, he sued them and he got, he got his money back because he went back and he was able to authenticate that the fact that the guy had been putting on fake labels and the wine was absolutely awful. Very few people can actually go through the process yes. of... Yeah. So this is why people don't necessarily, when they know something's fake, they don't say it because if they do, the person that owns it will Correct. take them to court and they will spend two years in litigation, def- defamation of character, <laughs> defamation of um, my assets or... So people don't do it. They just look the other way. And that's why the Rembrandt Foundation, the Jackson Pollock Foundation, they don't authenticate any of their paintings anymore. People Mm -hmm. used to come to them to get their paintings authenticated. Not anymore, uh, Roy Lichtenstein, because they get sued if if they say say so. Yes. Amazing. So where do you think the prices are going to keep going like this? Because they're outrageous. They're outrageous, right? They're just going to keep going, going, gone. They'll go. They just keep going. People have to put their money somewhere. I don't think the New York real estate market is going to crash, do you? Well, at one point it did, and then it came back. During the Gulf War, it went down, and the market, of course, went down with the mortgage nonsense. Bit, right? But it so it come, whatever goes up goes down as far as I'm concerned. Bit, but it holds its value. People think that art is a good investment for uh, 
Well, gold right now is going gangbusters, but certainly oil is not. And I don't know about paintings, but I but it's amazing because oil and gold are co- correlated, and gold is going gangbusters, and oil is going down the tubes. But it's because of the glutton, et cetera. But they're going to do so hopefully a little meeting that's going to sort of help the oil go back up again. But they're usually in a correlative um, sequence, which I thought was very interesting. I'm not very good with math, but people who are very good with math are very good um, money managers because the piano has very much to do with math, which is very interesting. And it has very much to do with sort of art, and, and it's all part of the money. I never knew that. I thought it was, of course, I can't play the piano, let alone sing, but. I always wanted to be a rock star, but hey, never happened. But uh, things really are not what they seem to be. It's basically what we're coming through. That's why your book is so incredible, because it is really, you're going to be on edge when you read this. The amount of information that is actually factual will blow you away. And so you have to understand that her book can be found, and don't forget the name of it, it's called Ponzi and Picasso. And her book can be found at the Whitney Museum, which has moved, which is fabulous. They've reordered 15 cases. I know, but how many books in a case? I don't know. 12. <laughs> well, that's okay. You've already sold out. National Gallery in Washington, LACMA, Los Angeles Museum, the Dallas Art Museum, and Amazon.com. And Rochelle Ostrom is spelled O-H-R-S-T-R-O-M. And the book has been acclaimed by so many people because she has discovered financial no-nos and taboos. And I, we just can't give it all away because we're going to spoil it. It's like telling you that we have a fabulous movie, but we're giving you little clips of wonderful information that would really, really just... Somebody wrote in one of her um, uh, stories, she said, I felt like I was on crack. I couldn't put it down. A lot of books have been written on the financial crises, but few about how it impacted the art world. Ponzi and Picasso is a great story to read, whether you are inside or outside that world. Fasten your seatbelt and brace yourself for a wild romp through the best and worst of the art netherworld. I mean, it sounds like a movie like There's No Tomorrow. I hope you do get somebody to do the movie for you. Now, I have examples of the craziest things in the world, and I don't understand how they do this business connections but the fact is, is that unless you get the book, you're not going to get the true facts, right? So you know how to find her. Whitney Museum, National Gallery, LACMA in Los Angeles, and Dallas Art Museum and Amazon. I cannot tell you how more proficient or what uh, you cannot get better credentials than my dear friend Rochelle Orstrom. And I'm so proud of you for having put yourself out because I'm sure people are not very happy with you right now, having sort of sort of busted the stuff, right? It's like saying, I just caught a narcotic group and they've got all... very upset. I can imagine. Really mad. (laughs) You may need a bodyguard. (laughs) But we're going to protect you, honey. We're going to protect you. This is so exciting. Now, you've got a great joke about your art. Oh, no. Oh, oh, no. Oh, you forgot. forgot. Oh, the... No, no, no joke. It's a, it was, it's terrible, it's terrible a situation. Terrible, there were so many, there were so many art robberies, and just recently there was a, a there was a small museum in Switzerland, and um, the, and these thieves came and they managed to steal a Monet, a Van Gogh, and a Degas, and they had this elaborate ruse. They finally got it out of the museum. 
because it was in the rural area, it didn't have too too much uh, security. So um, anyway, they're driving away in their van, and all of a sudden they ran out of gas. The the policeman apprehends them, takes the guy, the driver, throws him on the floor, his face is in the dirt, he's handcuffing him up, and he says, you idiot, how could you run out of gas? And he said, we had no money to buy de gas to make the van go. <laughs> I think it's wonderful. What a good one. Good one, good one. They certainly caught it. I mean, it's very funny. And so my joke is about similar about people who know things, and it's a little funny. It's a grandmother that's in court. And so in a trial in the southern small town, some prosecutor made her the witness. And so he, it, she's known him since childbirth, but of course, you know, he doesn't he remembers all this. So he approached her and he says, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded, well, of course I do. I've known you since you were a boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, and you manipulate people and talk about them behind their back. You think you're a big shot when you haven't the brains to realize you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. The lawyer was stunned. He was worried. So he decided to go to his adversary across the room so he would deflect the information on himself. And he says, well, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? She said, well, of course I do. I've known him my whole life. He was a youngster, too. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He could, can't build a normal relationship with anybody. And he's actually cheated on your wife, or he's cheated on his wife, and he's cheated with your wife. And so all of a sudden, the judge goes, could you please approach the bench? And he looks at the two prosecutors and the, and, and the, the thinking back. He says, either of your idiots, ask her if she knows me. I'll send you both to the electric chair. So don't forget the little mind of an old lady will certainly figure out who you are. So here she was. She turned the whole case upside down because they all had nasty things about them. See? So now your book is about turning it all upside down and telling the truth. I think it's marvelous. The truth prevails. Well, not always, darling, but we're trying to do so. So thank you, my audience, for listening to this wonderful story. Please. I beg of you to buy Ponzi and Picasso. I'm going to read it tonight, and I'm never going to put it down. As a speed reader, I can read it really fast. And uh, I just want to tell you, lead us on into temptation. We can find it ourselves. Thank you so much for listening to this incredible story. God bless you, and please go to the first bookstore and get yourself this book, which will eventually be a movie, I can promise you, and you'll be right on top of it. And maybe you could line up for a role. Okay, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you.